Good morning, everyone. Peter, I think today qualifies one of those Sundays where God helped us match up song and sermon. A little pretty, I mean, unless you get more credit, you should get more credit maybe. I don't know. You're working a little extra harder than, no, you always work hard. It almost came out wrong. You always work hard. I was going to say work harder than you usually do, but I didn't mean it that way. Um, anyway, well, um, good morning, guys. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new to our church, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad you are here for our gathering uh, we're going to spend some time, for the next little bit of time here, in Song of Solomon, as Peter mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or to the faith or to church or wherever you are spiritually, uh, we, uh, I said first service too, we, we don't uh, ever assume that people have even touched a Bible in their life, because a lot of people come through our doors and never have, or at least very little. But especially a genre or a portion of scripture like this, which is Old Testament poetry, and it's a book that's a little bit less accessible in a lot of ways. It's not, you know, this direct, explicit, this is who Jesus is by name, and the, kind of these direct miracles and the passion narratives and so forth, a bit more accessible uh, text. This is not that. This is Old Testament literature in and of itself, so it's preparatory for Christ, but it's also a genre that's kind of hard to really wade through. So if that's the case, in which I'm covering probably a lot of people in the room, just to remind you of where we are, and again, if you're newer here. Uh, we started this series a few weeks ago, so we introduced it then. But just in terms of a nutshell, kind of, this is what it's about. Song of Solomon, written by King Solomon, uh, about, who lived about 960 B.C. roughly, hence the name of the book, is a love story, or as I said a couple of weeks ago, almost more of a love dialogue. Because uh, love story, you kind of think, well, it's narrated by, you know, a third party and there's a story happening. This is uh, more of a love dialogue between a man and a woman who are, you know, go through their engagement, their wedding, their wedding night, and their and portion of their early marriage together, which includes some conflict and resolution and so forth. We'll get to that. Uh, but it's a love dialogue. They're talking the whole time. So that they have these exchanges about they're describing each other's uh, body and character. There's a lot of sexual language that kind of has come up already a little bit, but more in an anticipatory manner. Uh, the actual wedding night uh, exchange verbally uh, happens later. We'll come to that. Uh, later on. But, so again, covers all of that, kind of a whole gamut here of the relationship, engagement all the way through marriage. But it resembles, remember, something beyond itself. It's the most important thing you can know about this book and any marriage, really, that, that we read, or healthy marriage, anyway, that we read about in the book, is that, that it resembles something beyond itself, and that is God's love for his people, or from a New Testament perspective, Christ's special love for his people, the church. So marriages then can do one of two things, human marriages, if they're, and some of you guys maybe are going through divorce, you've been divorced, so marriage for you has not been a great experience, but some of you have had great experiences, whether you're experiencing them now, or you're engaged, or you're, you can't wait for that, or you've seen your parents have a healthy marriage, whatever the case, it can say that God's love is like this for you, if it's a healthy marriage, that God is like the husband in that marriage, the good husband who dies for his wife, but if it's it's a bad marriage, God is saying to you and to those who watch it and experience it, I am not like that. My love is not like that. I'm not like that husband. I'm not like that abuser. I don't divorce my people. I'm always faithful. No matter what, no matter what happens through thick and thin, I'm faithful to love until all the way until the end, which in, in, in our eyes, of course, in the divine side of things does not end. It's eternal. So, uh, we're going to look at this uh, idea today, then just remember that, have that in mind, because as we read this, you might think if this is your first exposure to the book, you might just get blindsided and say, what just happened there? What language was? Was that English? Uh, but as you go through it, at least have this in mind, that it's, for, it's from engagement. We're still in that preparatory phase of engagement. We're heading towards the wedding, the end of chapter three, and then marriage from chapter four all the way through chapter eight. So the, the gist of the book. And then also have in mind that this is about human marriage, but it's especially about God's marriage to his people. That's really what God is up to uh, in, in just history in general when he invented marriage, but here particularly when he writes about it, he's portraying something special about his love for lost people like us, which is marital in nature. All right, a lily among brambles or a lily among thorns, some of your translations say. Uh, Song 112 uh, to 2.7 and we're lumping this section together mostly because there's a lot of mirrored commentary. Uh, so and you'll see this happen where, you know, she will say something and he will respond, or he will say something and she will respond with the same types of language, which uh, led us then to, to lump this. So with that said, we're going to like preach about 10% of this. So you might say, well, you didn't even preach like 80% of the words, but it's just the nature of the beast. We'll, we'll read them all 
and coming on the big mountaintops, but there'll be some pieces we just don't have time for. Just have that in mind too. So let's read it. Song of Solomon 1.12 to 2.7. And the, it's subtitled here again, the she and the he, so you can uh, follow along better with who's saying what. Verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. All right. So, a little context for what's going on in the big picture here. Uh, What's going on? Remember, it's still a time of preparation and engagement and waiting in the story. Uh, The woman and the man, though speaking about each other, are also eager for love to consummate. Just kind of picture a engaged couple a week before the wedding or something ready to love each other. They have been loving each other, but ready to have sex and ready to really consummate in that capacity and just be married and be close to each other in a physical sense uh, too, more than they have been up to this point. So they continue to talk to and about one another in a fairly lengthy exchange that in part, like I said before, mirrors one another. So poetically, we see that their affection is shared. And this does not mean that all love stories begin this way. We're jumping into the kind of the engagement level here. We don't know how this love story started, uh, but it doesn't mean that love stories always start with shared affection. I guess that can occur, but it's probably more common where one person has the love and the interest and, you know, he or she initiates that on some level or expresses that interest and it's eventually uh, reciprocated. That was true in my marriage to Aletha. I, I had to uh, wear her down <laughs> eventually. Um, but I loved her first and had, had that those feelings a little bit more first, and then she eventually reciprocated. So I think that's, this is true of the gospel as well. The Bible is clear that we did not love God. We didn't meet God in the middle. The Bible doesn't say that this is love. You meet, you meet God in the middle with your love that he kind of gives you to, to begin with. The Bible says this is love. Not that you have loved God, but that God loved you and gave himself, and gave himself for you, gave his son to die in your place. That's love. Then eventually we... We're, we're captivated by that. We're, we're thankful for it. We worship him in light of it. So eventually, we have this spiritual marriage with God that, that does, in that sense, consummate when we, when we respond to him by faith and we become one flesh with him. We're united to him by the Spirit and all of that. That'll come up a little bit more later in this series when we talk about sex on a human level, but also on a spiritual level, which is non-literal, of course, but what that means to be one flesh with God and how much grace is in that uh, idea. But it's still, it's a love story of the gospel. And going back to song, though, where that probably happened, we're, we're just assuming that. But at this point, there's this, common, there's, this, there's this agreement on love. There's this commonality. There's this love each other that's been initiated by, but then eventually reciprocated by uh, the, the one party, but then the other party after that. So what we're going to do today is... Uh, approach this like, and I think we'll probably, I was thinking this morning, I think we'll probably do this literally every Sunday from here through mid-May, um, approach it with this type of structure. Though there might be some exceptions, so don't hold me to that. But we have been so far in this series, so at least we have this to go off of, uh, from the human side and the divine side. So in other words, and the Bible's written this way a lot. There's a human kind of almost, I can access a little bit easier. There's this front door approach to the text where we can see ourselves in the story and so forth. And the Bible does talk about marriage on the human level. It says husbands do this. Wives do this. Husbands and wives do this together or don't do this together or single people, you know, do this or wait for, anticipate. All these things are given to different people in different uh, marital statuses. And so we can approach things on a human level and say what principles about marriage can we learn 
So we'll do that to begin with. But then we're going to go beyond that to what's really going on here. Just peel back that first layer and look at the divine side, which is to see a picture of God's love for lost people like us and learn from that. Because this is what God is doing. He invented marriage in the beginning to basically say, this is what I'm like, and this is what you are like, and this is how I have loved. And even when you've been unfaithful to me, in the middle of the Old Testament, it says that the people of God are a prostitute, a harlot, a whore. We've whored ourselves out to other gods, but God has been faithful to us. And he's, he's brought us in as a, as a kind of an, almost an ex-wife, prostitute-like, sinful-like people. He's brought us in and cleaned us up and remained faithful to us. Isn't it incredible? I mean, just right there, we just end right there and say, amen. That's what God is like. And we are all like that, but God is like this, and he's been initiatory. He's been loving. He's been kind. So we're going to look at it from that side of things as well a little bit later on and really glean. So whatever your marital status, that's the beauty of a book like this. You don't have to be married to get the ultimate point of this book. Uh, it, it, it does speak into marriage, and we'll do that, but the ultimate point is God's love for you, whether you're single, engaged, married, divorced, um, your wife is, or your husband or wife has passed away and you're widowed or widower, whatever the status is, God speaks to you and says, this is what I'm like. Okay, so let's start with the human side. Uh, principles for marriage. So a word to husbands and wives, those who are engaged and those who will be someday, which is pretty much all of you, but if that's never you, that's fine. Uh, if you're single for the rest of your life, again, that's marriage is not ultimate, remember. Uh, God is ultimate. Uh, marriage is underneath him. So, But there's still something here, and I, I would say this to you if you're single as well. Uh, this is important. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, to hold marriage high, this is speaking to the church community, hold marriage in honor among all, or among the church may marriage be held high or may, may, be, may be held in honor. And I think the point is there is to still speak to whatever your marital status, to singles or if you're not married yet, to say, this is what a healthy marriage looks like. Or if you're single, not even dating yet, just to say, this is what you might want to look for in a spouse someday, or if you are, still to kind of prepare you for that. A lot of you are engaged and so forth. But to hold marriage high is to hold God high. If you hold marriage high and say it's important, we're going to work on messy marriages and, and bring restoration there. We're going to speak about it because when you do that, you speak about God. Remember, the Bible never, the Bible never says, here's some marriage advice for you, but uh, I, God, am not any part of it at all. The Bible never does that. It's always connecting the two. And so when we hold marriage high, we're holding the gospel that's demonstrated in it very high as well. And so, if, again, if you're not married, uh, this is still an important thing. Uh, to glean whether it's on that human level or that, or that divine. All right, so the first thing is, I have two ba uh, things here. There's more, but two major things. The one is uh, great communication in general, but grace-filled communication is love. So, I, you know, I don't care what your, uh, if you guys know what this is, your love language test. Some of you guys have taken that. I have all the people that I do marriages for um, take it. It's a pretty good little test. Some of you guys have taken that, right? Yeah, I see a couple of nods. Okay. I don't care what, <laughs> some of you guys are like, I'm not a words person. I don't, I don't like to get loved by words. It doesn't matter. I don't care what your personality type is. Uh, it's, it's celebrating with words, complimenting. Uh, it, that's an important part of any relationship, but especially uh, a marriage. Even if it's not like your primary way. If you have the absence of that completely, your marriage is going to suffer. I mean, no matter what. Because God is a God of words. God speaks to us and says, I love you. And so if he's the ultimate meaning behind marriage, we should expect to see that reflected uh, in marriage as well, or the absence of that to really harm our marriages. But part of this is declaring and showing, so speaking about this, but also showing that marriage is of highest value. So in verses 12 to 14, when they talk about uh, ointments and myrrh and spices, a sachet of myrrh, a cluster of henna blossoms, kind of parallelistically uh, listed out there. So 13 and 14 are basically saying the same thing. Um, but uh, 12 picks up on it as well. Uh, it's, it's declaring, they're talking about this, but the, the highest value, when they talk about myrrh and, and nard, expensive ointment, extremely rare, uh, but myrrh as well and a cluster of henna blossoms, they're speaking about something that would have been not super easy to come by, at least a couple of those, something very expensive in some of those cases, something that would have turned the head. You walked into a room and you smelled some of these things that would have caught your attention, distracted you, taken your mind off whatever you're thinking about, and pointed you to, what is, what is that amazing smell? It would have done that. So, but note here, it's not, especially in verses 13 and 14, note that it's not saying, ladies, try really hard to wear expensive perfume. That's not the point. 
uh, here. But rather, especially with verses 13 and 14 in mind, this is metaphor. He's saying, or it's, they're both saying, that my love is like expensive perfume. Or my marriage is, the marriage itself smells like the finest of spices. So in other words, if we connect those two things then, so like this expensive ointment or nard and this myrrh and henna blossoms may have turned heads and, and make us take notice and even distract us, so does and, or so should our spouses. I've been married uh, 13 years, and, um, and I can say, I think you're aware of this, Aletha, because I say this to you a lot. I, I think I should mourn probably as well. But um, when Aletha walks into a room after 13 years, she still literally takes my breath away. And uh, I know, right? Um, but uh, she distracts me. And she'll walk into a room, and I'll just have to kind of put down my book or my computer and lose my spot, kind of like I am right now, kind of fumbling around. And... Um, <laughs> Just take notice of her and say, or I don't know if I'll say this audibly all the time, but I'll just think in my mind, wow, that's interesting. I, I just love her. I love how she looks. I love how she acts. I love how she mothers. And it just impacts me. So it's kind of like then, that on a poetic level, it's, it's like um, what myrrh and nard and henna blossoms are doing here. The marriage itself is like that. It's of ultimate value, but it also does this kind of... Um, scent-like or aroma-like thing, that it distracts us. And I think that's one of the maxims for this first part anyway, though it plays into the divine side, but this first part maybe especially is love interrupts things. Love interrupts the normal flow of life. And, and all of us, I mean, probably for most of us, most of the individuals in here who have been married, we weren't looking for love necessarily. It just happened. It kind of came across our path and um, it interrupted things in a good way. It, it, it distracts. It turns our head like the finest perfume. So here's the thing. Because notice, they're talking about this kind of stuff here. They're, they're not just assuming this and talking to their friends about it. They're mentioning this to each other. Mar our relationship, our marriage to be, is of the highest value. So we can live this. Kind of three things here. You can live this and some of you are engaged and you're thinking, that's super easy. Nailed it. I've done that like six times a day already. Right, but So we can live this, and I think all marriages, you'll have this going on in your marriage, but also married for five years, maybe you're in a rut, 10 years, where you haven't been as verbal about how important your marriage is. Get verbal with it. This is not something, again, I don't care what your love language or temperaments are, we have to hear this, and if we don't, marriages will, uh, will fall by the wayside. They'll at least suffer a bit, and they'll need some mending on that communicative level. So live it, mention it, and then just work on it. Uh, it doesn't, so we can, on the word-based side, we can experience this subjectively. It'll just kind of come to us if we're in love. But on another level, especially after we've been married for a while, uh, this, takes, this can take some work. And, you know, we need to ask forgiveness, I think, of each other as spouses when we're in a pattern of not uh, celebrating verbally how important the marriage is. Above all things except God, it should be of the highest value. And I think and those are your parents as well. Aletha and I try to do this where, our kids don't want us to go on dates because they miss us, or they don't want us to travel. Last week we went to, uh, thanks to Christina Bast, who gave us her parents' timeshare for, is your parents, right? Or is it yours? Okay. Just want to make sure I was getting that right. Timeshare for a week, got away for a week, and our kids are like, um, don't go. <laughs> you know, it's kind of hard, but it's like, oh, man. But uh, we, we want them to hear that, that our marriage is more important to us than they are. That may sound cold, but it's not. It's like, if, if you... If you see our marriage as principle, as, as most important, then it's going to feed into what you see marriage as later in life, and you're getting a glimpse of the gospel in that, and it's going to make us better parents. It's going to, you're going to see love, I think, hap, happen more on a, uh, or just on a more healthy manner, and it's going to feed back into you, so it's, it's a good thing. But they cry, and we leave. And, but anyway, so it could happen on that level, too. Uh, but it, again, whatever the level, kids or not, uh, there's this live it, mention it, and just work on it. Uh, type thing that we're seeing poetically demonstrated here in the first few verses. Also note it in verse 15, um, the repetition from the husband. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. And he says it again, ah, look, behold, you are beautiful. And he gets specific. Look at your eyes. They are like doves. And then she reciprocates uh, later, which we'll come to. But Husbands, I think this is especially the order here, I don't think is a coincidence. Husbands, especially important for you to initiate with your wives like the man does here. And he gets specific. 
Uh, it, it is a very masculine thing to compliment your wife. It's one of the most masculine things you can do is get very specific about her character, about her body, what, it's, what attracts you to her, and just say it. Write it down. Uh, say it to her. Uh, because of how much that reflects, and we'll come to this, how much that reflects what God, how God communicates to us uh, our beauty in his son and, and so forth. But again, we'll come to that. But overall, this goes both ways. Husbands and wives, love your spouse with words, but especially men, uh, love her with uh, your words and communicate uh, specific things about her. And then more specifically, even here, which I think is a, a big piece of today that we do see come up later on, but I really want to hone in on this idea for today because it's sort of unique uh, to this section. And that, uh, and that is, there's particular love and a particularness and a specialness about each other that's being highlighted. So it's a communication that isolates one's lover from among other loves. It's a communication that isolates one's lover from among other loves. Especially in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says to her first, As a lily among brambles, so you catch my eye. So is my love among the young women. And she reciprocates that by saying, Ah, and you, and you too, to me, are like an apple tree among the rest of the less, uh, less exciting trees of the forest that don't bear fruit. You're an apple tree to me. And so, but again, he initiates this. And we saw it two weeks ago as well, if you remember, if you were here for this, when she starts off the whole thing by saying, your love is better than wine. So it's comparative. We're not saying wine's bad. Wine's great. But you're even, uh, you're more particular. You're more special. You're better than it. And so she celebrates him uh, for that as well. So husbands and wives, this goes both ways. Husbands and wives, husbands and wives to be. Do you celebrate your spouse's particular beauty? Again, in words. If this is something to emulate, then it should be word-based, at least in part. But, this is where it gets trickier, you can also demonstrate this to them or fail to demonstrate this to them as well. So, for example, viewing pornography does not demonstrate this to your wife, husbands. It could, wives to husbands as well, but husbands, viewing pornography does not demonstrate you are a lily among brambles among thorns to your wife, right? It views the opposite. It says basically, my love, you are not a lily among brambles. You are at best equally as beautiful as all the other women of the world, <laughs> right? So romantic. But no, it's not. It's not particular, right? It, it says you are on the same level of all the rest of the beauty. But what particular, you know, observed, beauty, observed love says is you're special. You're, you're like this picture, you catch my eye, you turn my head, you smell wonderful to me, and our relationship itself is of expensive value because of the type of perfume it's being linked with. So it's to say then if we're, and it could be a morally neutral thing too. I mean, there's pornography and sexual sin, different types of it as well, but it could be a morally neutral thing like television or really close friends that take priority in your life over and against your spouse. It's very easy to do, and things that we're, you're probably, you know, a lot of times we just do and think about it, uh, but things we need to kind of check our heart on. Uh, so it could be, you know, where are you spending time? Uh, who, are you, who are you talking to on a regular basis? And I talk to people sometimes who talk to their, and it's, this is, can be a good thing, and this is kind of morally neutral, so don't, if this is you, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing necessarily, but it could be. But people that say to me, I, I talk to my mom every day on the phone for an hour and a half, and I think, Part of me thinks, okay, that's great, but why? <laughs> why, you know? Like, that's great, but I, I'm glad you have a good relationship with your mom, but do you talk to your husband that much? Do you talk to your wife that much? And so, it could, or it could be really close friends or just TV addiction. I mean, most people say, and, I, and we, I chime in on this, if you're really, I mean, one of the best ways to strike against your sex life is to watch a lot of TV. It's just not, you know, watching three hours of TV before sex just doesn't really do it. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but this, it's rare. So um, we'll come to that later in the series. But anyway, so it could be morally neutral things that still kind of take our affections, and we communicate the opposite. My love, or darling, you are not a lily among brambles. And so, so how are we speaking this but demonstrating this as well with how we spend our time on a regular basis, whether it's, you know, morally... Uh, um, sinful or, or not, uh, there could be things here that, of course, it gets to that end. If it's morally neutral, it can, but there are also things that we need to look, our heart, look at our heart and check in on. 
All right, that's the first piece is grace-filled communication. Obviously something we've already seen in the series and we will. We'll keep coming back to it, how central words are to health and the marriage. But a few particular things I wanted to mention here uh, before we moved on. The second thing is a, a little bit of a shift um, in, uh, in the story. It's almost like a little bit of a hiatus. And we'll see it come up two more times, the same statement, essentially. So I'm not going to talk about it in full today. But since it is here, and since it is something that, uh, that kind of, again, it's a bypassing thing, it's a bit of a hiatus, I wanted to mention it because you probably noticed it as we read. And that is verse 7, which says, I adjure you, remember, O daughters of Jerusalem is the friends of, of the bride-to-be, the woman, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases so it's kind of a preaching moment. And if you read, if you read all the song, song of Solomon in one sitting, there are these moments where you think, like, almost out of, out of character or genre in one sense, where this love dialogue is happening, and then the woman kind of steps aside. I think of sometimes the, those TV shows or movies where, you know, a character will, there's a drama going on, and the character kind of turns his head and looks at the camera, you know, and says, kind of comments on something, or, you know, that kind of thing that happens sometimes in certain TV shows or movies. It's kind of like that, where she says, this is happening, uh, my marriage is about to happen, and then she speaks to her single friends and says, you see what's happening here? Learn something from it. Don't stir up or awaken love until it's the right time, until it desires. Don't force it. Don't experiment. Don't arouse love until it's the right time with the right person. So again, there's a lot of, look at what's happening. She's not been married yet. It's coming, but you see what's going on here, how a relationship has progressed and developed this will come to you, Lord willing, but a time of waiting makes it all the sweeter when it arrives. So the worst thing you can do is try to force it or hasten it in a sinful manner. And again, we'll talk more about this as the series goes on, but it is a pretty clear wait until you're married to consummate. Wait until you're married to have sex type statement. Allow that time of engagement and waiting to be a part of all of your relationships, even if it's a two-day engagement. These are important things. People come to you know, us fairly often, or we just hear about these things where people are really wrestling as Christians with this. Well, we're committed. Why can't we live together? Why can't we just start to have sex? We're not going to bail on each other. Why are these things really that, big of a, really that big of a deal? And part of it is, is that God has woven into his story of redemption, and I think into all the many stories of redemption that are mirrored in marriage, a time of waiting. So we know it's good. God says a lot of times in the Bible, waiting's good. Waiting is a good thing. Not just about sex either, about him. So the world says instant gratification is best. And God says waiting and delayed gratification is best. And you might be thinking, well, who likes to wait, you know, at the DMV in lines? No one likes that, right? But God is saying regardless of how you feel, he's saying waiting is part of what it means to be human and specifically part of what it means to be Christians. So God says things like this in the Old Testament, and there's, it's myriad, it's everywhere, but in Isaiah 40, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Waiting for God is a good thing. It's a part of the redemptive history. Israel waited for God to consummate, you could say, his plan of redemption in his son. And we wait now, though we're on this side of the cross, we wait for the second coming. We're waiting eagerly the Bible says, right? And, and here's the key. If that story of redemption really refers to marriage, and if marriage between a man and a woman and their whole story of engagement and waiting and consummation and wedding night and then marriage together refers back to God's love for the church, then both will have times and should have, must have, times of waiting. I don't care how short, but engagement must be a part of the story. Some kind of intentional, I'm committed to you, I intend to marry you, and we're going to be engaged and not to consummate until it's the right moment of marriage before God and witnesses. There are many more reasons too as well uh, that I'm not touching on today that I will a little bit later on. But th there's at least this theme I want you to see in the Song of Solomon of, of waiting, of when the time is right. And not just here, but elsewhere in a bigger theological sense. God is thinking that way. God is working that way in the world. And he's, he's saying, I am creating marriage and engagement and relationships to mirror what I'm all about. And so if we mess with that, we're not reflecting what he, how he's working in the world anymore. We're not reflecting it. We're, we're, we're messing with it. 
And so that's why it, behind all of what we see our relationships being, it must be God and must be how he's working in the world or else we, that's where we get our information from. That's where we get our choices for do we live together or not? Do we have sex or not? Uh, how long should our engagement be or does it matter? There are things like this. These are, these are things that come from this idea of waiting. It's a bigger biblical, always a good thing that we have to remember. <clears throat> okay, we'll come back to that though. Those are especially for those of you who are, are single, uh, but also for the rest of you and are, maybe are engaged as well and are wrestling through these things, but really for all of us to remember that waiting on God is linked with waiting to have sex until you're married. All right, that kind of links me then to the divine side of things, kind of bridging here a little bit. So again, on the, on the human side, communication is love. Do not awaken love until it pleases. Waiting is good. Well, the world says the opposite. Waiting is a good thing. The divine side is more of this picture of the relationship between God and sinner. This is one of the key phrases for the rest of our time this morning, in Christ. And the Bible uses that phrase all over the place in the New Testament to, re to refer basically to in the fact that you've been saved by the Son of God, in the fact that he's bled for your sins, in the fact that he substituted himself 2,000 years ago so that you wouldn't have to die in the manner he did and face eternal punishment. In all of that and your new identity in him, and then something is said. So like fill in the blank. So like Paul in the New Testament when he writes a lot of his letters says, in Christ you are this, or in Christ or because of Christ this is true, we have this hope, and so forth. So this is a really important thing to understand. Otherwise, we can kind of delve into universalism and we move away from particular love into more universal love, which is actually not as loving. And I'll come to that later. But the first thing here is, uh, in Christ, you are, if this is all a picture of you know, God being the Solomon, us being the woman, then you are not a bother to God. If you are saved, you are not a stench to him. You are not a bother. Rather, you are pleasing aroma to him where he wants to be around you. You are favorable to him now. You turn his head in, not because you're a good person, but because you've been adorned by his grace. 2 Corinthians 2, <coughs> 14 to 15, in the New Testament says, but thanks be to God, using some of the same language, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Here's the key. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to link that, some of that language with song one and two. So like the woman whose perfume gives forth its fragrance to the king and makes him take notice and vice versa, so does ours to God. So we are the aroma of Christ to God. And we are pleasing to him now. It's, this is amazingly good news. Especially when you remember that this was not the case before Christ came into the world. This is amazing on one level. If this is all you know about the Bible, to think that the creator of the universe has this posture of love towards me, it's amazing. I'm not trying to take away from that. But especially when you understand that behind that we have contrast of this wasn't always the case. We didn't always have this aroma of, of pleasingness to God. We in fact were the opposite. Until Christ died for our sins, until he adorned us in grace and purity, we were not in this state before him. It reminded me of in John 11 in the New Testament, speaking of when Christ raises Lazarus from the dead, it reminded me of this dead-like, stench-like state that we're all in. It's a portrayed sense, but so is song. This is the way God works in the Bible. So just bear with me as I read this and picture yourself as the Lazarus. This is what was always true about us, what still is for many of us. Reminded me where it says this, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. We're going to do this one more time before we're done today, but I want you to see the stark contrast. This is not the mushy gray middle of, well, we were 
we were kind of not smelling that great to God, kind of walking around, just didn't brush our teeth in the morning, kind of stinky to God. We were dead. Like, like Spencer read this morning, Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins. This is like we're supposed to image rotting corpse-like smell here. Not just, oh, you know, I've smelled better or a little bit of body odor. This is worse. And this is, this is the condition, so dead in our sins, having that type of dead for four days odor, that's what we're seeing here in Lazarus in John 11, type of condition before God. And in the other side of things, in Song 1 and 2, you have the most expensive of ointments, the most expensive of spices, myrrh and henna blossoms and this nard, this incredibly hard to find and rare fragrance that's being just lavished upon this woman and it's taking note, the king is taking note. That's the stark contrast that we have. And so we're not going to appreciate this positive side of this is what God thinks of us now if we don't have this. He did not always think of us that way. This was not our condition. And for those of you who don't believe yet, that is still your condition. And so what, what the Bible holds out to us is we are all Lazarus pre-resurrection, but God is set out to make us like the woman in the song. That's the contrast, the beautiful contrast of dead to living, of odor to beautiful aroma in his son before the Lord. And that's the invitation of the gospel. And he actually goes on again too, and we see this play out one more time where it says that the king says to the woman, your eyes, first you're beautiful and part of your beauty is in your eyes. Your eyes are as doves. And doves biblically symbolize innocence and possibly even a theological nod here to how in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, which again alludes to purity and empowerment and other things as well. But again, it's because of Christ that this is the case. We can read that as a Christian and say, that's true about us, and it is, and that should blow your mind. If, that's, if you're a Christian and that's true about you, there's no greater news that your eyes before God are doves, innocent, pure. But see, if you don't know the storyline, you're not going to see the contrast and maybe not appreciate it as much. Look, look at the New Testament says about our eyes. 2 Peter 2.14 says, Unbelievers have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. That's where you are. That's where I am. That's where we all are until God comes into the world, dies for our sins, and makes it possible for us to have eyes as doves. You see, see, see what's going on? We cannot read Song 2 on an island. We cannot we have to be as part of a greater storyline and ask, well, how can that be? If 2 Peter 2 is for, 2.14 is true, then how can song 1 and 2 be true about our eyes being doves? The problem is our eyes are insatiable. We cannot be satisfied. Eyes of lust, eyes of venom, eyes of adultery. We cannot be satisfied. That's the problem. Jesus is the remedy, and Song of Solomon is hinting at that remedy somehow. Well, sometimes it's helpful then when you read the Old Testament is to go back and put yourself in a, a pre-Christ place of looking ahead. And we still look ahead as Christians at the second coming, but look ahead in the way they did where God is promising to undo the curse. And a part of what he's doing in the world is, again, speaking through prophets, promising this time, but it's not here yet. And then God drops this poem in the middle of all the muck, all the sin, all the, my eyes are insatiable, for adultery, insatiable for sin type context in the Old Testament. And people would read that and say, well, is this, if this is true, then it must be the case that God will somehow do something in the world in the future where our fragrance, our eyes, our very beings will be washed, will be transformed and saved so that we will be called loved ones of God. Israel in the Old Testament was called not my people. At, at, at a point in their story because they, they, were so adult, they were so adulterous. They were so whoring themselves out to other gods. They were so in exile and away from God's presence that God labeled them not my people. But then to drop this in and say, not only is God undoing that and kind of erasing that, is he going to someday through Jesus Christ and make not just the Jews, but gent all people who trust in him, his people. But here he's saying that, that we'll have a particular love a particular special place at his table. We will be loved like a wife to a good husband. It's a very special 
special love that we have hope for. And it would have just been a hope in an Old Testament capacity, but now in Christ it is, on this side of the cross, a full-blown reality. So he continues by saying that you are beautiful. God calls us beautiful. Jesse talked a lot about that last week, so I won't hear again, but he labels us beautiful. And, and here's the, the amazing thing about this too. You might be thinking, we talk about eyes being like doves. Even as Christians here, most of you are Christians. <clears throat> but even as Christians to say, well, even as a Christian, I don't feel like my eyes are like doves. Even this morning, I felt like my eyes were more on the insatiable for sin side about 100 times before I walked in the building. Is this really true? We can have that tension. We should have that tension uh, as Christians time and time again. But as we have that, we remember that in one sense that's true and in one sense that's not. God labels things beautiful that aren't. God labels things perfect that aren't quite yet perfect. He, he claims things that are messy and adorns them. This is how he works in the world. He saves us by grace as we're sinning, not waiting for us to purify and adorn and put myrrh on ourselves and clean up our eyes and all of that. He brings us to himself as, as we are. So actually, one place I thought this was worded pretty well, so I want to read this to you too. This is from Burroughs in his commentary on the passage. He says, in his created works, God does not wait until they are perfectly finished before he can see beauty in them. So what this is saying is, Burroughs is saying here, but Song especially is saying is, you are beautiful to him. Remember last week? when Jesse talked about this, how we are dark but lovely. It says that don't, don't look at me, I'm dark. The sun has really not looked kindly on me. My skin is a little bit leathery. I'm not, I'm not beautiful, as beautiful as the other women over. Don't look at me, but I'm loved. A beautiful depiction of the church. This is what you are and I am. We are dark. Uh, we are worked to the bone. We are not as attractive as others, spiritually speaking, but we are cherished. And, and we are loved. It's the same thing going, going on here, and he's getting at, we're seeing kind of play out more and more again in this, uh, in this book. It's kind of like uh, I was thinking, as, just as a parent to those of you who have had parents, who have had babies, you can probably uh, understand this, but uh, as a parent to a child, I remember that we, when we had Jane, our, our firstborn, though this is true for all of our kids too, I should make sure that's clear. Um, but uh, for the firstborn especially, you know, when a baby's born, they are anything but perfect right? They're full of fluids and just slimy and sometimes cone-headed and, um, you know, skin is interesting colors and, and they're just crying. Our son, man, he screamed so loud. It blew my eardrums. But, um, and other things as well. But I remember when I had Jane, I looked at her and this, the only one thing came to mind and it was absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect pure, unadulterated perfection right before me. If the, and, and if God calls himself a parent to us, his children, do you think it's any different with him? It's not. So you see, he's saving messy people, calling them perfect because of what Jesus Christ has done for them, for us on a cross. You're perfect in his eyes because when he sees you, he sees his son. And like 2 Corinthians 2, he smells the aroma of his son, not you anymore. See, Jesus is so close to you that you have this, in your messiness, you can have perfection as well because of how much he's atoned, washed, given you new eyes, taken that odor of death away from you and given you a, an aroma of life forever. It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of his son. That, that We move from the realm of all of that over here to what we're seeing portrayed poetically in Song 1 and 2 and, and the rest of the book. So we are, in him then, singled out brought into his banqueting house, a lily among thorns, were chosen. John 15 says, I chose you. You did not choose me, Jesus' words, which is basically you could highlight that and say this is love. To flip that around would be to say, well, he doesn't love me as much, right? If, you, if, you, if he says, you choose me, I don't choose you, we'd say, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm, I still found you, but can we really affirm the love of God as much if that were the case? God chose you. He chose me. We see it reflected in the fact that the king here in Song 2 says, or she says about him, that he has brought me into his house. That the banqueting table, the banqueting house idea is a greater theological motif in the Bible for salvation. God brings you to, the, to his table to eat with him. That's salvation. And that only happens for people who are loved, saved, um, cherished, adopted, children, 
Uh, we're sons of God and daughters of God now in Christ. And so all of that, again, we could talk a lot more about this, but whiffs and motifs of, of salvation that we get elsewhere in the scriptures that are being hinted at here in song one and two. But in all this, I think, I want to make sure it's clear, another, motif, another maxim for here, here today, God has done more than accomplish the possibility of your salvation on the cross. He's actually saved you. Don't think that God has just made it possible for you to be saved. Well, I guess in one sense there's some truth to that. He's done much more than that, though. He's actually chosen, called you a lily among thorns, isolated you, had a special, particular love for you, and brought you into his house. These are not universalistic, well, I'll open up the possibility for everyone, then step back and twiddle my thumbs and watch what happens. This is not that type of language. This is special. It's, it's particular. It's personal. It's turning your head to us. There are thorns in the world, and there are lilies. Not all are saved. God is opening up the salvation, in one sense, to all people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, for sure, but he has a general love but a, for all, but a special love. For those he is saving, that if you lose sight of that, your relationship with God will undoubtedly suffer because you just won't think he's that loving to you. You won't be able to operate out of that love, live freely in that love, be less anxious in that love, be less depressed in that love. And I told my daughter last night when she was um, kind of a sidebar thing here, but she was uh, defending herself a lot. So I which we all do that, right? I think this is a kid thing. Oh my gosh, we always do that like 100 times a day as adults too. But she, um, we caught her in something. She was defending herself and saying, no, but I didn't do that, but you did. And, and I'm just saying, I want her, instead of saying, just stop defending yourself, I want to say, I want you to know how much I love you. If you really knew how much I loved you, you'd be free to confess your sin to me because you know it wouldn't change. If you know how much I love you, you could say, I screwed up. And it wouldn't matter because you know that my love would not change. It would endure. It's, you'd be less anxious. You'd be less walking on eggshells. You'd be less defensive of yourself. You would, I hate the self-justifying thing. When you say, I'm a good person. But when a kid says that to you, when you're a parent, you're like, stop it. I know what you did. Just confess it. It's okay. Rest in my love for you. I forgive you. And it's the same with God. God is saying, stop self-justifying. It's not about your religion. Stop cleaning yourself up. Come to me messy, full of eyes, insatiable for lust and adultery. I will give you eyes like doves. I will give you the aroma of my son. Come messy. Stop self-justifying and rest and operate out of my love. And we, we have to be reminded of this because we forget so stinking quickly. It's crazy how forgetful we are as sinful human people, especially when we feel distant from God or we're in the thick of sin, living like a pagan, even though maybe we're not, in Christ we're not. God does not tolerate us. He loves us like a husband loves a wife. He loves us like a good husband loves a wife. It's just so different. So we think about marriage, we have to apply that paradigm to it as well. When our wives and husbands smell good to us, when we're the only ones on earth for us, when we're captivated by them, when you see that play out before you, if you're single, think God is, God is like that. So in conclusion here then, uh, one last thing. This is the gospel. Living out of that love is the kind of conclusive idea here. Living out of the love that's portrayed, the divine love of God portrayed in song one and two. Believe in Jesus Christ afresh. Remember the contrast where we were and where some of us still are to where we can be. Here's what God says. Your eyes were once full of adulterous desire. You carried around with you the aroma of death. You were kept away from my presence, dead, entombed in your sins, hellbound. But I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have called you back from death itself through the sacrifice of my son, given you new eyes and a new heart and a very new being. And I have called you into my presence to rest in my shadow forever. You are beautiful to me. You are my creation. And I have a singular, particular, special love for you that will never, ever, ever fade away. I have saved you. When the man says you are beautiful twice in this book, it's, it's, a, it's a nod to the idea that we need to hear that we are beautiful in Christ every single day and more than once. If you think, this is why, just talked about this last week too, but wives especially have to hear they're beautiful all the time. And men, I mean, men, 
appreciate being called, hey, we're handsome too, that's great, and, you know, bring it on, that's great, but especially wives need to hear, and, and if we are the wife of God, we need to hear what's true about us in Christ all the time. We need to hear more than once the gospel spoken over us, the truth in it more than once. In fact, not just twice either. It's a nod to the idea of repetition in, in the Christian's life. We have to connect those two ideas. We are his lily among brambles. We are his lily among thorns. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we are, spe- we are created in him and loved in him and saved in him. And there's this call too at the very end, the woman saying, you are my apple tree among the more boring trees of the forest. Are we reciprocating that love as well? Worshiping, praying, resting, gathering with the saints, the church, loving the church because the church is the body of Christ. You know, all these things and more. Is, it, it, could it be said about our spirituality today, wherever, this, wherever you guys are, that saying to God and, and, and showing to God, demonstrating to God that he is like an apple tree among the forest, is that healthily, you know, more accurately indicative of your spirituality? And I'm guessing you should, all of you should have just said, no, <laughs> I did. Not perfectly, right? So what can you be doing in your life to make him, have that more of that central place, taking that throne of your life, making his love, not just general Christ, but the love Christ shows us, this, this type of, you know, we're appreciating it this much and living out of this type of love more and more and more and more in the context of the church, which is really what we do on a regular basis, right, as Christians. We're just constantly reminding ourselves of this because we, we forget all the time. A lot more on that, guys, but we're going to basically stop right there and just pick it right up where we left off next week because it's right in the middle of a a flow of argument, but that's enough for today, so let me pray. God, thank you for your grace in the gospel of Christ through the lens of song one and two, the challenge for husbands and wives alike to have a special particular love that celebrates, speaks, uh, cherishes, uh, treats our our marriages as though they're the most expensive and valuable thing in our lives however that might look, and then, but especially seeing how you do that for the marriage that constitutes Christ and the church. So thank you, God, so much for a love that is marital, uh, not a, a friend, just a friendship-type love or maybe even just like a boss-employee-type relationship that you have with your people. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says marriage, husband to wife, love, never divorcing, faithfulness, dying for the bride, and more. And we see a glimpse of that here. So God, help us to, even now as we respond, help us to reciprocate the much better love that you showed us 2,000 years ago uh, by basically saying here in a song, uh, you, my love, are like an apple tree among the, the, the trees of the forest. And we basically be saying that now in these last two songs and just with our lives uh, the rest of our days. In Christ's name, amen.